Good morning. Okay, so if you've got the, the church Bibles, we're on page 1775, 1 Corinthians 6, from verse 1. If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you were to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adult, um, adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. Thanks, Cam. Morning, everyone. Happy Father's Day to, to all the dads out there. Becoming a, a father or a mother is something that changes your identity, in a sense, isn't it? All of a sudden, you, you have the responsibility of protecting and nurturing and, and being a role model for this child. And that, sh that shapes the way you live because you're thinking, what values do I want to model for my son and daughter? How am I setting an example for them? And if you're here this morning as a Christian parent, how do I point my children to Jesus in the way that I live and in how I raise them? So who you are a parent, shapes the way that you live. In the passage that Cam's just read for us, we have what seem like two very different issues 
in the church. Uh, so firstly, Christians taking each other to court, and secondly, sexual immorality. Two very different issues linked by the theme of identity, who we are. Our identity shapes the way that we live, both in our, in our own physical bodies, but also in the wider church body that we're a part of. If you've been here over the last few weeks, uh, you'll have seen in the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians that there were issues of division in the church of Corinth, and the cause of that division was that people were being divided over which leaders they followed. And of course, all of this flowed from the fact that they were wrongly valuing the wisdom of the world above the wisdom of God, which is the message of the cross. Uh, Then in chapter 5 last week, we saw Paul criticizes the church uh, for not only tolerating sexual immorality from its members, but actually celebrating it, flaunting it. He tells them, you need to deal with sin like this so that it doesn't become a corrupting influence in the church. Which brings us to chapter 6, and if you've got an outline in front of you in the leaflets there, you'll see that this chapter is about honouring God with our bodies, uh, both honouring him in the wider church body, but also honouring him in our own physical bodies. Why do we do this? It's because of who we are. Let me pray as we get into it. Heavenly Father, this is a tricky passage on many levels. There are things that we're perhaps a bit uncomfortable with, but um, we know that the uncomfortable parts of your word are still important things that we need to wrap our heads around. And we pray that I will preach this passage faithfully and that we would all come away from here knowing you better and wanting to glorify you better. Amen. So firstly, to point one on the outline, honouring God in the church body. The situation that Paul addresses here is fairly straightforward. On one level, you've got two Christians who have had a dispute. One of them feels wronged by the other, and so he takes the other one to court. And Paul talks in verse 7 about multiple lawsuits. So we, we assume that this, is, this has, hasn't just happened once, but it's a, it's a recurring problem in the church, that conflict within the church is overflowing into the public. So that's the situation. What are the issues with this? Why is this a problem? Well, there are three issues that Paul raises. Firstly, it's the church's job to judge disputes within the church, not the world's job. Now, Paul isn't in any way disrespecting the the secular justice system when he says this. In fact, if we were to turn to Romans chapter 13, what we'd see is that Paul commands Christians to submit to the governing authority of the state because it's an authority that God has put in place to bring about justice. Paul isn't saying that justice should be denied when wrong has been done. He's not wanting to protect the guilty and to deny justice to the innocent and to to the victims in this. He's talking about situations where resolution can reasonably be expected. Uh, We've seen in the the end of chapter 5, Paul has commanded the Corinthian church not to judge those outside of the church. See, we have no business to judge people who aren't Christian for acting in an an unchristian way. That's, That's ridiculous, isn't it? The church's job is to judge those inside the church. So we shouldn't judge those who are outside the church, and we also 
shouldn't delegate judgment to those outside the church. That's the issue here. You can sense the the sarcasm and the the frustration in Paul's tone in in verse 5. Is it possible that there's nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? This is a church we've seen in the first few chapters. This is a church that thinks itself so wise by human standards. In fact, if we look at verses 2 and 3 here, on that last day when when God passes judgment on the world and, and even on angels, his people are going to have some sort of role in this. And yet the time comes when they need to exercise wisdom to resolve a dispute, and they fail, and it ends up very, very messy. So if it's the church's job to judge disputes between its members, how do we actually go about that? What's the process? Well, Jesus actually has given us the blueprint for that already, even before Paul writes this letter. So in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and he tells them, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. So the way to solve a dispute is privately, graciously, with the person involved. And only, only if they refuse to listen do you, do you gradually get more people involved to be able to bring a bit of an objective view to the situation, but, but also keeping things as contained as possible. And it's only when repentance is continually rejected that this becomes a wider church matter. So you can see that restoration of relationship is always the goal here, isn't it? Now, it sounds like really sensible advice, doesn't it? But it can be really hard to follow in practice, can't it? I just imagine I've got an issue with Meryl. Meryl's done something that I, I don't particularly like. What I should do is just, she hasn't, she's lovely, but what I, what I should do is go directly to Meryl, talk to her about it, point out what I think is wrong, have the difficult discussion, but hopefully get resolution. I'll tell you what's easier, though. Ken likes me. It's, I could just go to Ken and, and discuss it with him, and Ken will take my side. I'll feel really affirmed and validated. It'll be a much easier conversation to have. But what we need to do is to have the harder conversation, to be able to go to the person directly involved, to be able to have that tough conversation with them. It's the church's job to judge the church. The second issue is that this is a terrible witness to the outside world, isn't it? Verse 6, this is happening in front of unbelievers. So the world is watching as the church airs its dirty laundry for everyone to see. The church is supposed to be God's display people on mission to the rest of the world, showing the, the difference that the gospel makes. And yet they can't even resolve their own conflicts. We feel this, don't we? Even if lawyers and, and courts aren't involved, we're deeply conscious of how it looks to the outside world when unresolved conflict affects the church. So those are the, those are the first two issues. The third issue is that the lawsuits are evidence of a wrong heart attitude 
amongst the members of the church. Verse seven, the fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. And that's because of the relational impact. See, once, once you've taken someone to court, there's a pretty serious dent in the friendship there, isn't there? It's pretty, pretty hard to come back from that. And so Paul asks, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves do wrong, and you cheat, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. It's an issue of the heart. Why not rather be wronged and cheated than cause division and, and cause a breakdown of relationships? So the issue here is that where there's a dispute between believers, whether it's something that could end up in courts or just, just a, a smaller, more private matter, where there's a dispute between believers, the priority needs to be not on winning, but restoring the relationship. Not on winning, but restoring the relationship. That's the issue here. Now, Paul isn't saying that we should let people in the church walk all over us, that we should just let people get their way, because actually that's not loving either, because that's continuing to, to let people walk in unrepentant sin, and down the track they're likely to hurt other people as well. Paul is asking for humility here. He's saying that it's possible that someone will hurt us, and we may not even the score the way we'd like to. We won't win the battle. But our priority should be that the person who hurts us comes to repentance, that the relationship is restored. Now, so if you're, you're here this morning as a, a follower of Jesus, is there unresolved conflict that you have with a brother or sister? Have they hurt you? Could you approach them about it if you haven't already? Could you, could you accept restoration of the relationship even if you felt like you weren't fully vindicated in the way that you might like to have been? What would you prefer, a restored relationship or a personal victory? These are the difficult questions we need to ask ourselves when conflict happens. Because God is honored in the church body as we lovingly and sacrificially judge our disputes and maintain fellowship together. Why is this important? It's important because of who we are. Point two on the outline there. Why not rather be wronged, Paul asks. Instead, you yourselves do wrong. Do you not know, verse 9, that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? See what he's saying there? You've been doing wrong. Wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God. You think he's probably got their attention by this point. Paul then lists some examples of behavior that's uncharacteristic of God's people. People who are defined by this sort of behavior shouldn't, they're not living God's way, and they shouldn't expect to be part of God's kingdom in eternity because they're not living in light of it now. Paul isn't saying that if you occasionally fall into to some of these sins that you're in the firing line. Who he has in mind here are, are people who are habitually living and acting this way without repentance. People who are characterized by these sins, people who are aligned more with these sins than they are with following Jesus. Now, when he mentions the greedy and the swindlers, he's probably thinking of the two people in court 
who he's just spoken about, the, the swindler who's trying to rip his brother off and the, the greedy person who's taking him to court to get money for it. It's probably worth pointing out the, the reference to homosexuality there is very much focused on the action rather than just the sexual orientation side of things. It's a, a passage that's got quite a bit of publicity with the, the Izzy Folau events over recent months. It's, but it's important to, to realise this isn't a passage that is specifically judging the outside world so much as actually turning the attention inside the church and calling people within the church uh, to be discerning about themselves. And before we look down on the, the greedy person or the, the swindler, we have to ask ourselves, am I on this list? Am I greedy? Am I an idolater? That is, are there, are there things that I'm loving in place of God? And I think for all of us, there are. But, Paul says, if you're a follower of Jesus, that's not who you are. Because Jesus' death and resurrection and the work of the Holy Spirit have changed who you are. You have new identities from the moment that you accepted Jesus and received his Holy Spirit. We've been washed clean of the ways that we used to live. We've been sanctified, which means that we've been set apart to live lives that are pleasing and honoring to God. And because of Jesus' death in our place, we've been justified. That is, we've been declared right in God's sight because Jesus has taken his sin, our sins on himself. Washed, sanctified, justified. This is who we are in Jesus if we put our trust in him. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not quite sure if, if that's where you're at, but you, you like the sound of it, please come and have a chat after the service to myself, to Chris, to the, the person who, who you invited, who invited you here. We'd love to chat more about it because who we are in Jesus really does make all the difference. We don't want you coming away here not being sure about that. And if this is who you are, Paul says to the, to the Corinthian Christians, if this is who you are, how can you do what you're doing? How can you wrong someone? How can you take someone to court? How can you act in a way uh, that's divisive, in a way that destroys relationships, when this is who you are in Jesus? Now, we're never going to achieve perfection in this lifetime. We're going to be affected by sins all the way to the end. We're going to struggle with greed, uh, with idolatry, perhaps with other sins that were on this list in chapter 6, uh, perhaps with other sins that aren't on this list. But we should never justify sin, either in ourselves or in other people. Have you ever heard someone try to, to justify the way that a person acts just because that's just who they are? Like, you know, Chris gets a bit angry. That's just who he is. That's fine. Mark tells a few dirty jokes here and there. That's okay. That's, that's just who he is. Actually, it's not. Who we are, if we've trusted in Jesus, is defined by what he has done for us on the cross and the hope of eternal life that we have in him. And who we are not only shapes how we honour God in the wider church body, but it shapes how we honour him in our own physical bodies as well. Now, Paul has included sexual immorality in his list of behaviour just before. 
Chris explained last week, if, if you were here, that the Greek word porneia, which we, we translate as sexual immorality, is kind of an umbrella term used to describe any sexual activity outside of marriage between a man and a woman. And this is where Paul now specifically turns his focus. And the situation was that members of the church were having sex with prostitutes. Now, you can probably imagine there are some issues that, that Paul has with this situation. The first one being that our bodies are members of Christ. Paul begins this section in verse 12 by challenging what was probably a common saying amongst the Corinthian Christians. I have the right to do anything. I have the right to do anything. You can see how this completely flies in the face of the last three verses, can't you? They don't understand that who they are in Jesus shapes what they do. And so Paul replies, actually, if something is not beneficial to us, uh, to others, and for God's glory and honour, and if it's mastering us, that is, if it's having control over us, it's actually not our right to do that. He then challenges a second saying, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. In other words, our bodies are going to be destroyed one day. It, doesn't, it really doesn't matter what we eat. And evidently this saying had been extended to, to say, it really doesn't matter what you do with your body at all. You know, sleep with whoever you want. And hence, sexual immorality was justified. And it reflects a completely unbiblical view, but one that was uh, cultural at that time and, and to some extent today as well, that humans are spirits inside a body. And that is, we're spiritual beings, and the body is just a, a necessary and inferior accompaniment to our soul. It's not important, and so it doesn't matter what we do with it. Paul flips this saying around. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food? Actually, no. It's the Lord Jesus for the body and the body for the Lord Jesus. God will destroy them both. Actually, God raised Jesus from the dead, and he'll raise us also. And when we get to chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, we'll see that our resurrection won't simply be a spiritual one, but a bodily one as well. So we're physical as much as we're spiritual. And in fact, our bodies are members of Christ, temples of the Holy Spirit. Our physical bodies are united with the resurrected Jesus, and his spirit dwells in us. So actually, our bodies matter a lot. Our bodies are, are members of Christ, and sexual immorality is damaging to them. Paul, you can see here, he's horrified at the prospect of taking our bodies, members of Christ, and uniting them in sex with a prostitute. Never, he says, um, a while ago, I was working with a guy who bought himself a really, really nice steak from the butcher for, for celebrating a job that he, a big job that he'd finished at work, sort of $40 a kilo, grass-fed, and all that, all that sort of thing. Just going to warn you in advance, if you're a real food connoisseur, this story is going to horrify you, just giving you the heads up. So he had the steak at home in, a fri in the fridge, ready, ready to go, and he was just getting through his last day of work. And... All he could think about was this delicious steak that he was going to cook up for dinner when he got home. 
Problem is, he lived in a share house with a bunch of pretty, pretty clueless blokes. So he's got, got home from work, he's got steak on his mind, opens the fridge and he's looking for his steak and he, he can't find it. He's, he's sort of looking on his shelf, can't, can't find it. One of his housemates walks through and he, he says to the housemate, oh, have you seen the steak that was here? And his housemate goes, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm just cooking it in the oven at the moment. Yeah, oh no. <laughs> you, you don't cook steak in the oven. You don't cook an expensive steak in the oven. So he's gone to try and rescue it, and by this point, it's basically looking like a, a hot leather belt, completely ruined. And if that story horrifies you, then you're a, you're a tiny way towards understanding why Paul is so horrified here. Because this is not what our bodies are meant for. Why is it so damaging? Well, Paul uses the words from Genesis chapter 2, where we see the first ever marriage between Adam and Eve. The two will become one flesh. Sex is the physical expression of the one fleshness of marriage. It's deeply physically and relationally intimate. And it's properly expressed only in marriage, which itself is a powerful representation of a far better marriage to come which is the one between Christ and his church. But outside of marriage, sex is damaging. And the reason for that is that it involves the the constant creating of one body from two, and then the, the tearing apart of that body, and the recreating of another one, and the tearing apart of that one. It's damaging to the bodies involved. And if one or both of those bodies are members of Christ's body, then whose body is it ultimately damaging? It's Jesus' body, isn't it, that's being damaged? And so Paul tells them, flee from sexual immorality. No other sin damages your body and Christ's body in this same way. Any temptation to engage in in sexual immorality outside of marriage is a serious threat that we have to flee from. Ultimately, we we honour God with our bodies, verse 20, because we've been bought at a price. We're not our own. When we realise what it costs God to purchase us, the blood of his own son, that our bodies can only be members of Christ because his body was broken for us, that that's what it took to redeem us. When when we realise that... How could we use our bodies anyway but for his praise and glory? Now, the biblical view on sex outside of marriage really cuts against the grain of the rest of our society, doesn't it? You might be here this morning just checking out what church is all about, or, or you might be in that youth and young adult stage of life where this is becoming a really relevant issue. And you're hearing this and, and you're thinking, what, you really expect me not to have sex? Everyone else is doing it. Why should I deprive myself? And you're right in the sense that to try to obey the Bible's teaching on sex without understanding the why behind it is going to leave us feeling deprived. Because what what the Bible says about sex outside of marriage really only makes sense when we understand who Jesus is and how we relate to him. It only makes sense when we know that our physical bodies 
are united with Jesus in his death and resurrection as we await their renewal. It only makes sense when we understand the purpose that God has created sex for, not just for pleasure and for babies, but to bond two people together and to foreshadow an infinitely greater pleasure that's to come. When we understand that we, all of us, body and soul, we've been purchased at great cost. That's why we honor God in our physical bodies. It's why we honor God in our wider church body. It's because of who we are in Christ. Let me pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the identity that we have in Jesus. Thank you that we've been washed, we've been sanctified, and we've been justified if we've put our trust in Jesus. That we have the privilege of being members of Christ's body and temples of your Holy Spirit. Please help us to take that identity seriously, that it would shape the way that we look at our, the, our role in the, the church body and the way that we live in our physical bodies that you've given to us as well. And we pray that as we do this, that we would not be doing it out of duty and obligation and without the joy behind it, but that we would be doing it in response to who we are, the identity that we have that's only made possible by Jesus laying down his life for us. And so please help us coming away from here today really overjoyed about this identity, overjoyed about the hope that we have in Jesus and living lives that bring him great honor and glory. Amen.